0: Grand sweep of church history uh, is for someone to declare that some parts of the Bible are authoritative, but some other parts of the Bible aren't. It has it's had a bunch of different forms. Invariably, it is an excuse for somebody to cut the parts out of the Bible that they don't like and to remake God in their own image. Um, today, I find myself having an unusual empathy for the heretics, and so on the day when I eventually decide to go full cult leader, and declare myself the paraclete, and start overriding the Bible. It's not when, it's if. No, it's the other way around. It's not if it's when. This part of our Bible that we'll be considering today is going to be the first to go. Out into the bin. Get gone. That and the nonsense about rejoicing in suffering. Clearly, these people do not understand what they are talking about. Today we are considering a theme, I love that nobody laughed at that because it was like genuine heresy that I was preaching That's just for right, a moment yeah. there. And they're like, can we, can we giggle? Hopefully he's either joking or he's getting fired, it's one of the two. Well, maybe both. Today we are considering a theme which I think is one of the hardest parts, if not the hardest part, of Christian living. Of, of all of God's commands, there are few things more distinctly Christian and more impossible to do outside of divine empowering. We've been in Romans 12, a practical chapter, um, as Mike mentioned during our prayer meeting this morning. Um, How wonderful is the equipping and the practical encouragements we've all received as we've walked through this, this picture of how the gospel changes the way that we live. In view of God's mercies, we become living sacrifices... Our lives are no longer our own. We lay them down willingly and gladly, not in order to gain God's favor and earn his love, but as those who have already received undeserved kindness and love from God, we live differently. As a forgiven and redeemed people, we now live like this, and we've been here for for several weeks now. Our passage today begins in verse 14, and we'll be progressing right through to the end of chapter 12. At times, we've, we've gone so slow as to go one verse at a time through this immensely practical chapter of the Bible, and yet there is a single theme that sort of connects all these parts together. As much as we, we genuinely could go slowly through this, and it would be of great benefit to us, it's also worth holding it together to see the grand sweep. I'll read to you from Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is a common thread that runs through this entire passage. It is this gospel grace changes the way that we interact with others, it changes the nature of relationships for the Christian, it fundamentally shifts the way in which we interact with other people. As Christians, we treat people differently than how we did before we met Christ. That's not, that's not particularly surprising thus far, is it? Jesus told us that the two greatest commandments in the Bible are, first of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, and all the other bits that I'm forgetting. And the second greatest commandment was to love your neighbor like yourself. And so part of being a living sacrifice is that we are to love our neighbor. And thus far, we all clap and say, how wonderful. We we, we appreciate this. We enjoy this about God and the way that he calls us to live. We are pro-love. But in this part of Romans 12, we are getting more specific as teeth. It starts to define what loving your neighbor looks like in a way which is entirely uncomfortable. Because now we're talking about a theme which has strong emotions attached to it. These commands touch the nerve of how it is that we do conflict with others. Christian community is gracious. Christian community is gracious. Grace is undeserved kindness. And grace is Not only to be the way in which God has treated me, but now as the recipient of grace, it becomes the hallmark of how we as Christians love others. We treat people with an undeserved kindness. The main thread of today's passage is summed up pretty neatly in the first verse, verse 14. Which reads, bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse them. Isn't it horrible? (laughs) It turns out that as Christians, because of the gospel, we do conflict differently. We do not treat people as their sins deserve. Do those words sound familiar? Not just here at church, do these these commands apply? Not just here in this one passage in the Bible, but at many points throughout the Bible. We are called to turn the other cheek, that's the Sermon on the Mount, and to seek the benefit of our enemies. It's radical. If that command sounds easy to you, you have yet to realise what the Lord is saying to us. This is devastating. This is one of, if not the hardest parts of Christian living. I would be pretty certain that most of us, older than the age of a small child, can think of a person who has treated us unfairly in a way that has left a painful mark on our lives that remains with us for a long time. Someone who has persecuted And if we think about those events for more than just a moment, if if we give emotion just, just a chance to catch up with our mind, we find ourselves reliving the pain of being powerless, the injustice of being wrongfully slandered or opposed or accused, the seething rage that we feel and the desire for vindication. We think about it for just a moment, and suddenly we are having arguments in our head with people that aren't even here. Do you do that? I do With all of you. <laughs> if you think of that person responsible for inflicting this on you for any length of time, it is overwhelmingly likely that your thoughts have become less than charitable. Do you have one of those in your life? Do you have more than one of those in your life? As human beings, our natural response to that person is very different to the response that we are being called to have towards them here in God's word. Is it not? Actually, there's there's a wonderful German word. We all should know it. And the word is schadenfreude. You take that one home. It's hard to translate, apparently. I don't speak German. I just like to pretend. Schadenfreude means something like the pleasure that we take in the pain of others. For example, some complete wally has been tailgating you up the highway before overtaking dangerously and speeding off towards the horizon, imperiling you and your family for no reason other than their own mulleted ego only to be pulled over by the police just in front of you a few metres down the road, and you think to yourself, take that, you buffoon. (laughs) Schadenfreude. (laughs) And isn't it a good vintage? Mm, The floral bouquet of irony. (laughs) The piquant notes of deserved ends. This is human nature. If you had... Absolute power for a day. And you could inflict whatever you wanted on the one who had mistreated you. What inventive punishments could our minds concoct? Here in Romans 12, God, through the apostle, takes all of that and puts it firmly out of bounds for the Christian. No, 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 no. This goes further. It is not a mere prohibition against seeking to crush our personal enemies. It is a call to proactively seek their benefit. To pray for them. To bless them. Let that sink in for a moment. What we are describing here is not a human reaction. That's not my reaction to those who have persecuted me. Placed in the context of my personal pain, this command sounds outrageous. It is, quite literally, an injustice. It doesn't sound appealing at all. So what on earth is he on about? And here's the rub. When we see it, when we see someone live in this way, when we encounter that kind of radical new approach to others, is it not unarguably right and good in a way which silences every mouth? How devastating it must have been to pride for anyone who has lived in this way, and yet how gloriously praiseworthy it is. Let me draw your attention to just a few places in the New Testament where we see someone living in this way as very extreme examples which show us just how far these principles are intended to be taken. The first we see is Jesus himself. The Apostle John explains to us in the opening of his gospel the tragedy of Jesus' life on earth. In John 1:10 and 11, he says... He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's, not, <laughs> it's a very subtle way to say they crucified him. And as they did it, his very own chosen people, he prayed for them. He prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't it praiseworthy? It is, it is devastating to our pride, but it is, it is right. It is praiseworthy. It is glorious. It is divine. It is unhuman. We are not like that. But our God is. Not long after this event, the deacon, Stephen, is seized and put to death by the same group of people who had arrested and persecuted Jesus. And as they threw stones at him in order to end his life in bloody violence, he prayed for them. In Acts 7. Falling to his knees, verse sixty he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Some pretty good last words. Isn't it devastating? To pride. And yet how right, how praiseworthy, how glorious, how divine. We are not like this, but our God is like this. As Stephen died, a man named Saul was there, holding the cloaks of those, throwing the stones, and giving his approval to the death of this innocent man. Absolutely complicit in the events of the first martyr. God, in his unique way, had a plan for Saul, Not to treat him according to what his sins deserve, but to save him and to make him the apostle to the Gentiles we know as Paul, the author of how much of our Bible? Where would our lives be without his writings, the author of the book of Romans? On the day of Saul's conversion, the Lord appeared to a Christian brother named Ananias in a vision and told him this in Acts chapter 9. Rise, go to the street called Straight. I think it might have been called Straight Street. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. It's quite a vision. Ananias's response to this vision is somewhere in the vicinity of, are you flipping kidding me? Do you not know who this man is? Do you not know what he has done? Do you have, Lord, any idea what this man has been doing to your people, going from house to house, pulling families out in chains and having them thrown in prison? And you want me to go to his house and pray for him? One of two things is going to happen. I'm ad-libbing a little bit here. Option A, he's going to arrest me and put me in prison. Or option B, I'll kill him myself. At least if I was Ananias, that's how the conversation would have gone. The Lord explains. I have a plan to redeem him. And to use him uniquely for my name. And to the eternal credit of Ananias, he got up on his own two feet And walked to meet a man he had every reason to hate. And he prayed for him as Saul received the Holy Spirit and was born again with the scales literally falling from his eyes as he gained new spiritual sight with which to behold the Savior. And it's devastating. And it's right. And it's praiseworthy. And it's glorious. And it's divine. And we're grateful that he behaved in that way, are we not? How, how different would the, the sweep of history look if Ananias had sort of said, no, I'm not going, away with him. Probably not, Jesus, you know, sovereignty, he'd be fine. It's hard to inception this thing. But we aren't like that, are we? We humans don't respond to our enemies like that. our God is like that. And that's the whole point. Our God is like that. The call to bless our enemies is a call to be like Jesus. Is this not how he has treated you? He hasn't treated us according to what our sins deserve. He took the initiative in reconciling with us Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And isn't it beautiful and praiseworthy? Isn't it the bedrock of our lives that he is like this? Isn't it divine? He is so unlike us. Brothers and sisters, if we have been so treated, then surely this is how we should treat others. This is distinctly Christian. It is no coincidence that as the the influence of the Christian faith has receded in our culture, people have become less gracious with one another. In the name of tolerance, many have rejected Jesus because of his narrowness. And what has followed in their wake is ungracious intolerance, the unpersoning of our enemies. The lack of redemption. Without Jesus, humans do not do this. It is in Christ alone that we gain the motivation and the power and the reason to fulfill this command. You cannot have one without the other. The world needs us. It needs us to be living these radically different kinds of lives to demonstrate to them who Jesus is. It is of the highest importance that we as Christians heed these words. By this will all people know that we are His disciples. This is love. Christian love. Now as we we read this, aren't there some... Some glaring, glaringly obvious objections that rise up from within us to the call of this passage. Like, if we're being honest, it's unpleasant. It doesn't seem immediately appealing. If I am to believe this, if I am to live like, if if I'm going to do this, they're going to get away with it. Isn't that what we worry? This is going to lead to injustice. I will become a punching bag for my abuser. This will enable all kinds of evil. That's our worry. That's not it at all. The same Jesus who prayed for the ones crucifying him had earlier made a whip and taken to the folks at the temple to call them to repentance. The same Stephen who prayed for the ones murdering him had but just a few moments before been confidently calling those hypocrites to repentance. Both for their treatment of him and their crucifying of the Messiah. That's what angered them enough to kill him. This is not a call to turn a blind eye to sin or to call evil good. Do you understand? This is not a call to enable sin. That would be a misrepresentation misrepresentation of what we're being called to. But make no mistake, it is a radical call to, regardless of sin, seek the benefit of the one who has done you wrong. We need to live like this. Its effect is so profound in demonstrating the character and call of Christ. The significance of this can be felt here. right? Let's take church as our training ground. We we are called to live like this in, in all the spheres of our life, but all of Christian living has its first application in the church. If you are part of a church for long enough, any church, this one included, then eventually, at some point, somebody here is going to do wrong by you. It's probably going to be me. Might be Mike. Everyone else is pretty good. I'm imperfect. Phil's imperfect. Danielle's imperfect. We will sin against each other. Without the attitude of heart described here in Romans 12, without the godly actions that follow on from these commands... Every time such an offence occurs, we're off to the races. It's time to leave this church and find a new one. Not again. Off we go. Looking for the perfect one. Going to find it one day. It's time to, without grace, every offence is an excuse for bitterness. The end of relationship forever. Do you see? But with this, with this call to love the sinner, the one who has sinned against me. When somebody takes the initiative to live like this, it breaks the cycle of inevitable division and quarreling, which is the history of the human race, and instead it brings about blessing and reconciliation and redemption in a way which mirrors our eternal home. We are called to live in a spirit of graciousness, which is willing to overlook offense, which is willing to see past that pain to a better thing. Reconciliation, our highest hope. And this call applies here at church, and it applies in your marriages. I don't care what they did. It applies in your wider family. It applies in your workplace, and it applies to how you approach society in general. This is how we treat people. If we all lived like this, the world would be a better place. By this will all men know that we are his disciples. By your love for one another. Do you want to live like this? When, when I hear this, I still have, I've still got one last objection. And it's a simple one. I can't do it. It's impossible. I'm not that kind of person. To which the Lord replies with man, yes, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What is so wonderful about this passage here in Romans 12 is how useful it is in giving us help. To live this way. It gives us motivation and it gives us wisdom to live like Jesus. And if we're going to live in this way, all of these themes are going to be helpful to us at some point in our lives. Why don't we consider some of them and we'll we'll work our way from the inside out? Start with the heart. First, what we see here in this passage are some things in ourselves which we are called to oppose in order to live graciously. There are some do-nots in this passage. There's two main ones that I can see. The first is do not be haughty. We see that in verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The the first part of gracious living is to get a correct view of myself. We are, as Christians, to oppose prideful arrogance within ourselves. We are not to be haughty. If we approach people with an attitude of We'd never say this, but we do it. I'm the king, serve me. We had a sermon about hospitality last week. Anyone who's worked in hospitality has experienced this attitude for a living, right? How dare you serve me my coffee at 67 degrees? I specifically requested 64. I'm the king, serve me. If that is what is happening in your heart of hearts, You will not be gracious when the serfs disappoint you. But brothers and sisters, if Jesus Christ himself was not above being gracious to others, if he was willing to take the form of a servant, and you find that it is beneath you to be gracious with others, It may well be because you have grown to have too high a view of yourself that you need to be rescued from. And the first thing that you will need to do in order to live like this is to humble yourself before God. To ask him to show you the reality both of your own sinfulness and the very real certainty of his gracious acceptance of you despite it. The second do not tells us that we are to restrain in ourselves the instinct for payback. There's a few commands that we came across in our passage. Repay no one evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Do not curse them. It's a package of commands, isn't it? This is not saying that if a crime is committed against you, you can't seek justice. You most certainly can, and at times you should. But what it is saying is that we live from a different set of motivations which may well cause us to act differently. (laughs) I I, I seem to remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus saying something about if (laughs) if someone forces you to walk with them a mile, offer to go the second mile. We do not always fight for justice for ourselves. We do that in a way which is incomprehensible to those who do not share our hope. If you you are like me, there there is an instinct in us which when offended, wants to crush and destroy. To give back what I have received. He's going to slander me. We'll see what's left of his reputation when I'm done. Time for Twitter. It used to be emails. Now it's Twitter. It's much more public than it used to be. you stole from me, I'm going to take you to the cleaners, and you will never be able to buy a hamburger again. It is that attitude of heart that we are called to oppose within ourselves. There is a difference between seeking justice and seeking vengeance, revenge, payback. Actually, these commands are really helpful because we're given a concrete reason to let go of vengeance. You ready for it? Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Think of the one who has wronged you. Is it not sufficient that they will face his wrath? Do they need to face yours also? (coughs) They do not need to face mine as well. Facing his judgment is worse than anything I can do. There is a promise here. When Jesus returns, he is going to make every wrong right. And so I will know on that day that either by their facing his wrath or by their sin having been placed on Jesus and atoned for, that the problem of my persecutors will have been dealt with fully and finally and forever forever. Nobody's going to get away with it. Perfect justice justice will reign forever. Depend on it. And live like you believe it. Justice will be done. And in seeing that, I am set free. In handing vengeance over to God, I am liberated from the cycle of bitterness, which would otherwise define me. They're the do-nots. We keep working our way outwards. We oppose the wrong attitudes in ourselves by the grace of God. The next thing that we do is we cultivate the right attitudes. Seen in commands like these. Bless those who persecute you. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live in harmony with one another. We cultivate some positive attitudes of gracious love towards others. There is a long-standing debate within Christianity. It's over this. Does forgiveness take one or two? Can I forgive someone who is yet to repent? Jesus Jesus told the disciples if your brother sins against you 70 times in a day and 70 times he repents, you must forgive him. If he repents, we've got no decision to make, we have a command to obey. We must forgive. But what if he doesn't repent? What do I do then? What if he insists that he is completely in the right and the reason he is carrying on doing it is because he thinks he's perfectly justified and what if he says that you are a big stupid head for suggesting that he is even a little bit part of the problem and that you should probably go and do some serious reflection about your attitude, Matt, because I've told you this six times already. Shut up, Stephen. Some, some argue. There's no one named Stephen here, is there? <laughs> <laughs> That would be a moment. We could talk after the service. Some argue you should forgive him, even without repentance. Others, that you can't forgive him. It means nothing until he repents. To be frank, my view is closer to the second than the first. That forgiveness has no meaning without repentance. Reconciliation is certainly impossible without two parties coming to the table. But this passage is showing us that even before the other person finds repentance, we as Christians should be cultivating an attitude of heart towards them. We should be preparing forgiveness in advance. Do you understand? It is our hope and our aim to be reconciled. It is our prayer for them. That God would bless and not punish. And that we would have opportunity to be reconciled. We do not, as Christians, have the same delight in punishment that we do in restoration. Picture the, the, the story of the prodigal son, told by Jesus. The son walking over the hill towards home, and as he crests the horizon, dad is already sitting on the front deck, just waiting for the opportunity to be reconciled. The son doesn't get halfway through his apology before dad is shushing him. I've been waiting for this. It's cuddle time. Bring it in, buddy. Bring it in. Bring it in. Kisses. Let it out. We should have forgiveness in a go bag beside our bed, ready to be released. We reject a vengeful heart and we cultivate gracious one. How? Because God has been gracious to us. Because God has been gracious to us. Because that's how I want to be treated when I'm wrong. And because vengeance is His. See above. We reject the wrong human reactions within us. We we cultivate a gracious attitude of heart. And then lastly, with that all happening well, we are called to walk in gracious action. This, This is the part where belief meets life. We are told in this passage, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thank you very much for doing that, Ananias. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. We're told to overcome evil with good. We're told to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. We believe it, and then we do it. (laughs) I think in the doing, we find out whether our belief is sincere. Those commands are quite self-explanatory, aren't they? If if the heart is right, the actions will change. There's one funny bit in there that's hard to understand, the bit about burning coals. Nobody is certain what it means. Uh, For example, a common reading is that in, in treating your persecutor with kindness, you will make him feel ashamed by treating him graciously, perhaps leading him to repentance, and that's the burning coals heaped on his head. My my study Bible held out the option that burning coals in the Old Testament usually represents punishment. And so it might be saying that by treating my persecutor kindly, it's adding to his judgment. Actually, the the study Bible went as far as to say that burning coals always represents judgment. But that's just not true. At at, at the call of Isaiah, an angel pressed a burning coal to his lips and pronounced the forgiveness of his sins and his call as a prophet. And so we're left with the options of anything from shaming him to increasing his guilt or to bringing about reconciliation. And it's kind of hard to know which one we're meant to understand. Thank you very much, Paul, for a strange illustration. Getting over that. With practical commands like these, I find it's better to ask a simple question. Do I see these sorts of actions in my life? Is this how I live? Do I exchange blessing for cursing? Can you think of a time when you've done that? Is this how you respond to your persecutors? Are you gracious within community? Is there a place in your life today where this call is urgently relevant? got some reconciling to do, so far as it depends on you. Does that sound too hard? There's one thing you can do. You go back to the heart stuff. You've got something to work through with the Lord. And it's going to be devastating. But it's going to be right. And it's going to be praiseworthy. And it's going to be glorious. And it's going to be divine as you become like him. I'm not like that, but my God is, and he can do all things. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, even as we forgive those who sin against us. We pray this in the name of Jesus.